Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is up, all of you beautiful people? My name is Robert Donaldson, and you are listening to Season 2, Episode number 17, 2.0 of the All Eyes podcast. And just to be clear, I did say 2.0 because we actually recorded this episode recapping the Big Ten Championship and uh, previewing the Citrus Bowl. But due to, let's just say, uh, technical difficulties, it didn't get uploaded. So somewhere in the void of the podcasting realm, there's about an hour and a half long recording of that and I talking about things that you guys will never hear. <laughs> um, so that's that's always a great way to start off a week and then just get in the podcast mojo. It's like, oh, well, that was a waste of time. That said, as always, I'm joined by my excellent co-host yet again um, for hopefully a podcast that does make it to post, Dad Nelson. And we're here today to reminisce on what was the 2021-22 season for Iowa football. Obviously did not end as Iowa fans or we would have hoped, but I guess it kind of just is what it is. When you look in the rear view, Thad, what are your thoughts on sort of how Iowa finished this season and just the season as a whole? How did it go for you? A disappointing um, finish in some ways. We talked on the pod, like, I was just not going to let this game affect me. Uh, this Hawkeye team got to 10 wins, which is more than I was expecting going into it. Um, I just didn't think that's what their ceiling could be. They got there, they played in a Big Ten championship game, even if they kind of backed their way into it, um, they were there. They played a really competitive first half in that one, uh, and then we get to the bowl game, there's no Tyler Goodson. We find out uh, hours before the game that the number one wide receiver for Iowa, freshman Keegan Johnson, is a late scratch uh, due to injury, so you know, an offense that was already really struggling. And then for that to happen the way it did for them to look terrible for parts of it and then come back roaring um, offensively in that second half combined with their defense to take the lead, look like they might hang on um, only to fall in the end. Just kind of felt like I told myself again, don't get disappointed (laughs) in this season. Don't let this game affect me. And there I was at the end. Uh, is right there <laughs> upset because it was so close to this ending to a season that was already um, so many positives in kind of how the season played out for wins and losses. I know there's a lot of things that we can pick apart individually um, kind of on a micro level, but they got to 10 wins. They were right there for that bowl game. Um, saw some bright spots on both sides of the ball with some young players, uh, but it just wasn't meant to be in that bowl game. Uh, Wandale Robinson, man, he, you know, kind of a one man wrecking crew for that Kentucky offense. And, you know, that's the way it ended. And, and I still have, you know, some positive thoughts about they got to 10 wins. I did not think that they could do that. Uh, it was really ugly at times and kind of painful to watch from an offensive standpoint for much of the season. Uh, 
so it's a, it's a season where it's just so many mixed feelings about like, this was great. This was terrible. There was just kind of very little what Iowa usually is just like down the middle. We're going to be solid. We're going to be average in a lot of aspects, maybe really good defensively. Um, but it was just so up and down all season. Yeah. And I will say, so the Iowa football schedule for next season got posted today, or at least the the conference schedule. And I saw a comment under, I don't know which tweet it was, but somebody's just like, oh, great. Another 10 win season, 10 and three. Here we go again. I'm just like, when was that a bad thing? When when was 10 wins a bad thing? You know, there was a time where Kirk France was labeled as seven and five, eight and four. And now it's just like, oh, another nine win season. And then this season, it's like, oh, I guess people are getting used to 10 wins. You know, Iowa was underwhelming, to say the least, on offense all year long. Uh, they didn't have a game outside of Maryland where it really clicked for them. Uh, you know, even in the Kent State games in Colorado State, in some of those games where you kind of presume that they are going to dictate how it goes on offense, that really wasn't the case. And there was times in the Kentucky game where it clicked and you saw what it could be, but I feel like that's every bowl season with Iowa at this point. You know, there's always certain little moments they go on, uh, little runs they go on that it's just like, oh, why wasn't that the game plan all year long? But, you know, it, it was a great season. I mean, a Big Ten championship appearance, yeah, it wasn't a great uh, performance in the Big Ten championship. But, you know, and this is something, I guess this is what we're, the podcast listeners are hearing this for the first time because we already talked about this, but it was, didn't make it to air. Um, you know, that was the closest blowout uh, that we can probably <laughs> draw up. But at the same time, yeah, they did get outperformed and they couldn't score points to save their life. And that was kind of, and all their losses, really what took them down at the end of the year. You know, against Wisconsin, they couldn't score points. Against Purdue, they couldn't score points. And against Michigan, they couldn't score points. But against Kentucky, it was just one of those games where it really felt like Iowa was the better team um, for a lot of that portion, but they just didn't have the best player on the field. You know, Wandale Robinson, I mean, that guy made the plays that Iowa could never make with any of their their guys on their offense. At least we haven't seen it, you know, this season. We have seen it in the past from certain guys that Iowa's had that just bust a play open, like an Akram Wadley, for example, or somebody like that who can just make something out of, you know, a 10-yard catch, turn it into 50 yards. I can't, I can maybe count on one hand how many times that actually happened for Iowa this season as a whole, where a guy just takes a catch, makes multiple guys miss like that, um, and houses it or gets a massive gain out of it. You know, it just didn't happen a whole lot unless there was a, a free lane or just to run green gas because of a broken coverage or something. Just, that even really happened this year for Iowa. So, Offensively, it was it was a mind-numbingly frustrating year. Um, I'm glad that portion's gone, but that defense that we got to see this year um, absolutely outperformed every single expectation, I'd say. So many questions people had about the linebacking core, um, about the D-line, a new fresh D-line after so many losses up there, and they all those both those levels performed way beyond expectations and have given us hope for the future and excitement for the future, especially with the recruiting classes coming in and young players only getting better and taking the next step. So this season, yeah, it was a disappointing end, but they were about two minutes away from potentially winning 11 games, not just 10, 
but winning 11, winning a big bowl game against a big-time opponent, and, you know, that's going to happen. It's unfortunate how it ended, but I think it's a successful season given what the expectations were coming in. You look at this season, really there were two of those losses, Purdue and Kentucky, where just one man as a receiver just took the game over and made a couple big plays that absolutely turned it between Wandale Robinson and David Bell in that Purdue game. And Iowa just had no answers. And at least with Robinson, uh, for stretches, they did a good job on him. Bell was just loose the entire game. And I thought Iowa did some good things to try to match up, but you know he made plays. And as you mentioned, from that receiving core, I think we saw Keegan Johnson do it once or twice where he made a few guys miss and, and make a big play out of nothing or um, extend a play for longer than maybe it looked like it was going to be. But other than that, it just didn't happen enough this year. And you mentioned it in bowl season. It feels like every year I was able to find some things that work for them offensively during bowl season. And I think a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, Kirk Ferentz has been there forever. That that style, his philosophy on things has been there forever. And even when they've had three different offensive coordinators and there's some slightly different schematics, some little bit different with game plan of things. It's still under the same umbrella and big 10 schools have just seen it forever, you know, and even if the head coaches at another school change coordinators have been through it, you know, maybe they were an assistant under a, at a big 10 school before, and then they get retread back around and now they're a DC. A lot of those plays that maybe, uh, don't work in big 10 season, all of a sudden work. We saw the the tight end throwback screen uh, work. I was tried to run that this year, um, the last couple of years, you know, once or twice a year, and it gets shut down. But in a game like this, where maybe, you know, they're watching this game's film, they don't have, you know, three or four years worth of kind of material built up, uh, it worked. And it's it was a, you know, kind of like so many things. It just came down to a couple red zone possessions, a couple plays here and there. Late in the game, Iowa's kind of M.O. for so much of the season. Need to be able to get one or two extra first downs. And on short yardage situations, whether it be second, third, or fourth down, just weren't able to get it done. And that was kind of the Iowa's uh, M.O. this season. And it played out in that bowl game where just some of those little things added up uh, and kept them from the win. Yeah, and what's what's crazy about this game is I felt like there was times where the passing game actually felt alive a little bit. Um, And it was because of those throwbacks. It was because of a lot of play-action rollouts. I felt like every single one of those was a completion for a big gain because I was also, also, another thing to note, and the reason why those worked is because the ground game was working. You know, the offensive line was playing really well. And shout out to Gavin Williams and LaShawn Williams because, you know, Sometimes you're the hammer, sometimes you're the nail. You know, that's like a, a saying that, you know, sometimes you're going to get smoked by a safety like uh, LaShawn, Dan, uh, LaShawn Williams did um, in that first quarter on the first drive. But the rest of the game, he was the hammer at 5'10", whatever he weighs, and he has juice. And he was laying, I mean, they were scared to tackle him at a certain point. You know, I think it was uh, Corker, number 29, Kentucky safety. He laid the first boom on him. And then about the third quarter, or fourth quarter, got annihilated by by LaShawn, LaShawn Williams. And both those guys, 
were decisive. They were patient enough. But what really stood out to me, and I think they have a leg up on even Tyler Goodson in this area, and Tyler Goodson was a great player, but one area that they definitely have a leg up in, in particular Gavin Williams, once they get their feet sort of chopping and they have the patience, they start up again a lot faster than Tyler Goodson did. You know, there was a lot of different plays where they barely escaped a heel tackle. How many times this year where we're just like, oh, Tyler Goodson just got barely tripped up, you know, just barely because he was he hit a stutter step or he was trying to be patient, waiting for blocks to develop. And somebody just got him by the ankle. There were a few times in this game where both those guys were almost grabbed by the ankle, but had that extra little gear and that juice when it first fires up to really break past that little heel tackle. And it led to some big runs that really weared down uh, Kentucky's defense in that humidity, which, you know, that obviously played a factor. I mean, um, you had guys on Kentucky side, you know, I don't want to say they were faking injuries, but it's probably more like cramping. Um, but th- one thing for sure, they were gassed, you know, and Iowa's defense was gassed too. Um, the second to last Kentucky drive when they were on offense um, and Iowa was on defense, there was a third down for Iowa's defense and Riley Moss got caught in a pass interference situation. Um, kind of got tangled up with Wandale Robinson. And after the play, Riley Moss had no argument, He just, but you looked at his face and he was just like, I'm get, I have to go play another three downs at the very least like this. I am dying out here. You can tell he's sweating. You can tell he's exhausted. His hands were like drooped all the way down his sides. It was definitely a game where both defenses got worn out and you could really tell that they were both gassed by the end of it. I'm really glad you brought up uh, both Williams in their run game. And I don't think either of them individually is as good as Tyler Goodson. But what they did for this offense in terms of being able to just keep creek, you know, keeping up three yards, five yards, seven yards, one yard, six yards, you know, they were never, or I shouldn't say never, but rarely with that minus two, minus four situation. And I thought that helped Iowa's pass game so much. And really, when you look and project forward, kind of the ticket for this offense is keeping from being so far behind the chains on second down. And that's what this offense did, especially in the second half. I mean, how many times in the second half was it second and three, second and four, you know, situations, second and one, where because of that steadiness on first down, and even if it was like second and eight, at least it wasn't second and 12 or 13. And for this offense to be able to just kind of keep moving forward at a semi-regular pace was so important because it allowed play action to stay open. And I thought, you know, Spencer Petras looked really good with his play action passing game. Best he's looked all year. So, you know, do you wonder, is that just a, just playing against Kentucky who was down some guys and, and maybe that was it a situation where, um, you know, maybe he was, had some lingering injury issues and, his mobility was um, affected both on his lower body and upper body on some of those. Uh, but Iowa looked really good in those situations. And I thought the combination of their ability to to kind of pound the ball on the ground and then utilize the tight ends, because let's be honest, without Keegan Johnson, with Tyron Tracy already at that point in the portal before he had committed, they were just really shorthanded at receiver. And it was going to take some of those guys. And they used... Uh, Ivory Kelly Martin, they used Gavin Williams in the pass game a little bit too. So 
But all that opens up because they were in yardage situations that were advantageous for this offense going forward. And it was really fun to see. And as you mentioned, man, those two run hard and they get behind their pads and they keep the legs churning. And while, like I said, they're probably not on an individual skill assessment, uh, what Tyler Goodson is, maybe long-term as a pair for this offense, um, it alleviates some of the issues this offense faces and maybe they're a better fit with the current personnel on this offense. Yeah, and I and I think they're different backs than what Tyler Goodson was. You know, Tyler Goodson was a very patient-driven, uh, vision-oriented pass catcher who um, had a wide enough body where, but enough agility where he's almost like deceptively um, able to get an extra two or three yards um, when he was in a box with somebody in in a little bit of space. With LaShawn and Gavin, they are definitely the traditional, what you call like one cut kind of guys, where once they hit the hole, they hit the hole and they have a lot more juice than Tyler does. Um, And also, you have to also factor in, they're in a warm state. Um, They haven't been playing all season. They haven't accrued a lot of the injuries that Tyler Goodson probably did, you know, touching as much as he did. And the past, you know, seven, six or seven games that we saw from Tyler Goodson, um, and the past six or seven games we saw from Tyler Goodson, you know, he was playing in cold weather where you're a little bit more timid. It's going to be sloppier. Um, you know, your muscles aren't, they're tightening up. They're not loose. Um, and so that obviously plays a little bit of factor just from a perception standpoint. Um, when you look at how those guys look so much more explosive than Tyler did at the same time, it does give you a little bit of excitement to see, you know, what do they look like next year when, it's probably like a duo kind of thing. Um, this past season, it was kind of the Tyler Goodson show. Um, now I kind of feel like it's definitely going to be a more traditional split down the middle kind of thing, um, which I was had in the past and it's been working out really well for them. They've had a lot of successful years with that kind of split. But yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to look at um, moving forward. And it's definitely something to get you excited about because it's kind of a taste for the future, I guess. And that's... a. I- the thing with it, it gives you an idea of maybe what this offense, especially from the running back position, looks like going forward. And you had a really good point. I mean, those two were really fresh. And you get to that point in the season, and running backs are going to be beat up. And especially you think next year, those two are really physical. They're they're going to accrue some little bumps and bruises, ankle issues probably as the season goes. So for them to come out and they were so fresh, Um, and they were able to provide that pop that this offense was really needing. And even their ability to get, you know, take a seven-yard gain and turn it into 17, 18. And some of those, you know, we talked about a little bit um, messaging back and forth after the game is, you know, they're close. If they can get some receivers blocking downfield, we mentioned if Brandon Smith is there, one or two of those goes for a touchdown because he's swallowing up a defensive back and Iowa's defense or Iowa's receivers for this game were just really small without Keegan Johnson um, out there, you know, not that he's the biggest guy, but they were just really small out there and they're really going to, you know, interesting to see going forward if they can find somebody uh, to pair up out wide uh, to give them a little bit more size to help with their downfield blocking, I think will be helpful, but there was a lot to be, um, I don't know if I want to go excited when talking about this Iowa offense. I feel like that's a, a step too far. But some optimism about what this offense can look like. We just found out Sam Laporta is officially coming back 
um, as a tight end. So you have two tight ends you really trust. You had two running backs that looked really good. Obviously, Monty Potabom will be coming back. And you have some receivers that showed some life. You know, we still haven't heard about Charlie Jones, but you still have Johnson, Reganey, and Arlen Bruce, as well as some incoming or some younger receivers that maybe can provide a little bit of energy as well. So on the off with the offense, I should say, um, there is a little bit of optimism and the offensive line looked significantly better. And obviously Kentucky was without a couple guys um, on the defensive front, but the line played their best game of the season by far. You know, when I was watching, let's um, also actually let's get that. And I was going to talk about the guys who are coming back and leaving, but I kind of want to make a point. I kind of I didn't like that Keegan Johnson was out because um, obviously he's a great player. He's part of Iowa's game plan. Um, he's a talented player who can do a lot of things for you. But I almost kind of like the fact that he was out for a bowl game um, in the sense that it kind of forced Brian's hand to get more players out in space. Um this game against Kentucky, especially in the second half, felt like basketball on grass. I mean, there was so much isolation. There was so much manufacturing a guy getting a touch and then having the ability to run after it. You know, so many screens, so many, so much misdirection on play actions and throwbacks. And it felt like every single time they did that, they were picking up at least four. And sometimes they were picking up 15 on a throwdown, you know, to Sam Laporta, um, which is, which in turn then set up. You know, the naked. So, what was really killing Kentucky in the passing game, especially in play action, was the naked rollout, um, sort of the levels, like the crosser, the Sam Laporta throughout the entire first half, early third. And then that bomb that Spencer dropped to Sam Laporta, I think it was in the third quarter. It was about a, felt like 30, 40 yards on the money. It was a tight end throwback. It was the same kind of thing. It was, it was set up by a counter, the previous play, actual counter run. Um, and it was counterplay action, uh, naked rollout, but Sam Laporte actually ended up running a double move instead of running, contending with his crosser. And he initially sold it like he was going to run the crosser. The Kentucky player that was guarding my, I don't know if it was a linebacker or safety, I'd have to look back at it, but he got out in front trying to cheat. And then Sam Laporta just immediately cut it back into a corner on a double move and had the dude beat by like five yards and Spencer put the ball in the money. That's the kind of uh, misdirection and, and, you know, messing with an offense based on sequencing and plays that you've ran earlier in the game and setting it up for later on that I've been wanting to see all season from how many times have we talked about Brian Ferentz just calling more double moves? It's not difficult. And especially when he does call a double move, it's, it's set up by something that worked early on and that the defense is starting to cheat on. And all of a sudden it's a massive play, but it feels like there's only two shots per game where they even attempt something like that. Um, they attempt, attempted two of them. One was that one that really worked out well. And then one was the other one to Nico Reganey where Spencer missed. Him. There was nobody within 20 yards of Nico Reganey and Spencer missed him by about 10. Um, Hey, that was that's a throw that a lot of Iowa fans are going to be pointing to when they talk about this upcoming QB competition, and deservedly so, I'd say. But yeah, I mean, you. Just, I just wish I would have seen that the entire season because it felt like it was something that was definitely lacking. I feel like in a lot of games, and you kind of roll it out through the season. There are a lot of times where we say, "Man, that was a really good call. Like they set that one up really well. They timed it well." 
sometimes I do feel like Brian holds on to those a little bit too long, you know, like whether it's um, short yardage when they do the fake to the fullback, pitch it out uh, to the running back or some of those throwback plays. I sometimes feel like they hold on to them a little too long, you know, waiting for the perfect time when maybe if you call it a little earlier, maybe it works, maybe it's not quite as effective. Um, but it does just change the way the defense has to react to some of those things when they know they're happening. So I feel like it doesn't always have to go to the touchdown. You know, they can run a few of those to get, keep the defense from just flowing, even though maybe it won't look as like, Oh man, that was perfect. When it does work, um, it'll still be good. And that's what this offense needs is just more good. It doesn't have to be great. Just more good. And that it was the same play call that happened in the Penn State game, you know, that ended up being a touchdown. It was a tight end throwback called when the game's nearly over. And it's just like you don't need to make every single game a heart attack waiting to happen. You know, you can set it up early on and build yourself a lead. And those touchdowns still count the same early on in the game. You know, it, you can spend a game setting up um, something the entire game and get modest results and then have that one big payoff. Or you can try it three times and get two payoffs out of it. The one time it doesn't happen, oh well. But at least attempt it. You know, it, I don't think that you know the defense is going to be. Oh, once it happens once, we're going to be so conscientious of it. We're going to take our ourselves out of what was working early on. I think that once you it can get them reset back into the mindset of not even paying attention to it. I think back to the Big Ten title game in that um, running back throw you know, the halfback toss play. And, you know, it, that was a situation. They called it early and had it hit, it change, possibly changes the way that game looks. You know, you think of how how that first half and especially that first quarter played out. If that hits for Iowa, the game looks significantly different. Now, maybe they still lose. Maybe they lose by 35 instead of what it was. Um, but I do think that game plays out quite a bit different. And that was a chance. Look, they called it. If you save it thinking, okay, we'll want to run this at the important time, you get to that fourth quarter and it doesn't matter. There's no place to run it. So uh, I was really pleased to see that they um, ran a few of those different type of throwback plays, take advantage of Kentucky over pursuing into some of those situations and their defensive ends uh, really trying to crash down on the ball. And I was able to take advantage of that. And when Kentucky did bring extra pressure, for the most part, the offensive line did a good job up, up until the, the final offensive play for Iowa when um, they brought a four-man. It reminded me so much of a Wisconsin play where they show pressure. Um, they only bring four, but they overload one of the positions. Um, Iowa, we don't know the blocking call. We don't know if um, the left tackle was supposed to slide in or if he was supposed to kick out, but it was a four-man pressure that had a free blocker. And it ended up, the uh, pressure ended up causing a turnover. And it just felt like one of those Wisconsin plays where they show pressure one way. Um, they don't bring a full load of guys. It's still a seven-man um, backfield for defense, and it, it goes against them. Yeah, and, you know, that's that's kind of what leads to now this QB controversy and people saying, you know, Spencer shouldn't be the starter because – his two interceptions were really, really bad ones, and then you also have the Nico Regani miss. You have a miss in the in the first for, on the first drive, I believe, um, 
they basically he kind of threw it like a catcher throwing down a second base or something. Like it was down in a way you don't know even know he was who he was targeting. Um, both guys were open and he just missed them both. Um, the throws that he missed in this game were ugly, and um, the times where he had ba- bad pocket presence, it it was rough. But he made a lot of great throws in this game. Um, but there's the aspect too of I, I believe it was on the first throw that got um, or the first interception that got uh, deflected. There was a lot of green grass. That was a wide open pocket. That's about as clean of a pocket as you're ever going to get. And he's forcing it over the middle. I think that even if it wasn't tipped, it's probably still getting intercepted based on where that linebacker was coming in from. And, you know, it's one of those things where this is where people call for the Alex Padilla kind of thing. You know, where's the playmaking at quarterback? Um, where's just the, the extra level of being able to manipulate a pocket? You know, Spencer can't do that. Alex Padilla maybe can. And so now do you talk about, do you value athleticism and potential playmaking in an Iowa offense? Or do you value, do you sort of value uh, processing ability, arm talent, and sort of experience at the helm? That's going to be the question. And I don't foresee Brian or Kirk willingly valuing the short athletic playmaking guy that could potentially be a playmaking spark. We don't even know. If he could be a uh, a playmaking spark, who his arm significantly worse than Spencer Petras, or do they value the guy who they've been trusting for two years, who won the job initially, who has a great arm naturally, and just kind of has really great process. He knows where to make the throws. Um, he doesn't make a lot of mistakes, um, but it's just where does that lie? I'm I'm curious to see. I think it's going to be kind of they're forced into starting Alex Padilla or at least giving him a shot. Um, to start regular season games next season. It's it's just going to be, as you said, interesting to watch play out. And I think what makes it so interesting too is just the stark dichotomy of the two players. I mean, it comes starts at their physical stature. You know, obviously Spencer Petrus is a big guy, 6'5", 235. Um, Padilla, probably six foot. I mean, I know he's not listed at that, but he's probably six foot. Um a little, you know, more mobile, obviously. He's definitely not a runner. Um, doesn't have the arm strength, but it's not that it's, you know, terrible arm strength. It's it's sufficient, but they're just so different in terms of build, kind of what you see, can see out of them. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, one place where Spencer, I would assume, has a pretty big advantage is just, you know, all of those reps of being out there and being able to process things. And I think of... Uh, there was a play where Iowa was kind of backed up, maybe to their own. I don't remember if it was five or eight or nine, somewhere kind of backed up. And uh, Spencer audibles to a run to the to the short side, to the boundary. And Williams picks up 19 yards. And all of a sudden, Iowa's out, you know, past the 20, and the offense has some space and now can do something. And those yards don't show up in his stat book. And that's fine. But those are the sort of plays that Iowa relies on their quarterback doing. Hey, we're in a bad call. Here's the formation. Um, Maybe not we're going to pick up 19, but we're going to get out of a bad call and into something that at least isn't terrible. And in that case, uh, I think it was LaShawn Williams picked up 19 yards. And I'm not saying Alex Padilla can't do that. All reports are he's a very intelligent dude, has a good grasp of the offense, he definitely, I think, could make those decisions as well. But we just haven't watched it happen. So I think the coaches trust Spencer to make 
that sort of read. And both quarterbacks are going to be put to the test in spring. And, you know, with the announcement that Padilla is returning and Spencer's returning, we're going to obviously get an open competition and a chance for uh, both of them to win that opening spot. I would assume that somebody will get named, and but they'll say, you know, look, in the fall, things are still there. But I, I don't think the coaches... I don't think the coaches want this to linger, you know, until a week or two before the first game either. I also don't think that based on public opinion that they can or that they um, that they have a choice. And as far as lingering, because I think that they are going to side with Spencer. Um, It just it makes sense just based on how they like their offense run. um, Everything that he brings to the table from a skill set perspective, physicality perspective Alex Padillo has never made sense to me based on what kind of quarterbacks and what they value in their quarterbacks. And what we've already seen from um, Alex Padilla is, you know, he doesn't fit that mold of an Iowa quarterback at all. So is Brian going to be like, all right, well, let me change up my offense because I feel like he's just a stubborn ass at this point. I mean, we, we've seen him, you know, he's stuck to his model of an offense to a T um, despite no results. No results in multiple seasons. He's stuck to it. Um, some seasons it's worked because of the personnel that they had on the offensive line and at the skill positions, and it just kind of worked out that way. But there's been a lot of times where it, it really has not, especially in big games. And I just don't see them willingly siding with Alex Padilla based on what he gives you, unless they're just they feel like they're forced to because they need a a spark in quotations a spark around an offense that did nothing this year and they feel the hot seat coming on at least for Brian. Yeah, and and that's there's just really no evidence we feel like. Um, and what I saw with with Spencer, I don't I don't feel like. Um, Obviously, you can point out to a couple missed passes, but I don't feel like his play um, overall is this defining reason of why the offense struggled so much. I think he had his struggles. Um, he was not, he did not play extraordinary that game or any game. Um, but I don't feel like there's a situation where um, he's going to get beat out for this position just based off of when he what he can do. And I feel like they're still going to say, well, the ceiling's probably a little bit higher because of um, his physical traits. But as you said, we don't know. I mean, it, it could come out where this spring um, Padilla just looks a lot better and is making all the throws that they want him to make and is making the decisions. And as you said, the kind of the pressure of, look, we need this offense to look better next season and we need to get um, maybe a, a different wrinkle because, you know, Iowa does miss out on a lot without having a quarterback that can't occasionally scramble. But I also think that, and we mentioned earlier this season, Iowa kind of values that as well because they don't want to have to be going to a backup quarterback frequently. You know, we think about these quarterbacks that run around all the time and what they look like often by the end of the season. And Iowa's had a long run of, for the most part, sticking to one quarterback that is not injured. You know, I think back to all those injuries that CJ Beathard had and how really maybe some of his lingering issues kept that team from really reaching their potential. That's not his fault. Um, and it wasn't always like him just taking off running and getting hurt, but it does open the door for that. And is it something where I, where Iowa decides, look, we don't even want you really scrambling that much. You know, 
we'd love some pocket presence, but we don't need you scrambling much because we don't want to bring in that risk of having to go to the next guy or, or possibly the next guy after that. What percentage of this Kentucky game do you think Spencer Peters played well, um, snap by snap when he's asked to pass or whatever, what percentage do you think that he had a, a good rep on a play, a passing play? Oh, I'd, I'd have to go back and, and stat it out to really see. But to me, it felt like, um, you know, 70, 75% of his snaps, I thought uh, decision-making was good. I thought for the most part, ball delivery was fine um, for the most part. You know, there's going to be misses, you know, and obviously some of those stick out when you miss a big play. But that's the beauty of bowl game. We got to watch, watch a lot of games and quarterbacks all across the country missed big plays. We just remember them because our emotions are tied to every Iowa play. So we remember them. Um, but if I'm watching Baylor play, I don't remember the open guys that they missed, you know, I, it, it go, oh, he had him. And then I forget about it. Um, and quarterbacks across the country are going to miss passes. So I'm not going to hang on one or two of those, Um, but at the same time, you could also say, look, when a guy's that open on a big play, you just have to be able to at least allow them a chance to catch. And, um, his swing and misses when he does swing and miss like that, it's so bad that it opens the door for heavy criticism. And that's absolutely, um, just criticism. So the reason I brought that up. And I do agree. I think that 75 to 80% of the snaps on passing plays, he played very, very well. Um, and I'm not even talking about the ones that he didn't make uh, or the throws that he, or the reps that he had a bad rep on. Um, I'm just referring to that there was 80% of what we felt on a passing play was a good play made by him. And there was only 20 points scored when the defense was lights out. So where do you fit that blame? I mean, it's obviously Brian. And this is not a, this is not a secret anymore. This is kind of obvious. Um, it's absolutely Brian. It's absolutely the game plan. It's absolutely the way that they try to attack defenses. You're eighty percent good reps. You said 70, 75 of passing plays. We felt like he had a good rep, and they're only putting up twenty points. And a lot of that really just came on a couple explosive plays. It felt like one to Sam Laporta, one to Arlen Bruce, um, both on misdirection kind of plays. So. If we believe that, if we believe that Spencer Petrus did well on 70 to 80% of his reps and they're only putting up 20 points, that's pathetic. You know, and, and also it, it raises the question, well, does Spencer just make the play that's in front of him and not elevate the offense at all? I think that's a fair criticism. I think that, you know, there's a guy, that's why I think Alex Padilla is so easy to gravitate towards for some people because they saw what he did immediately against Northwestern. Against, against Again, it's Northwestern. But immediately when he came in, plays started happening. Sparks started happening. Plays were being made in ways that we hadn't seen from Petrus at all. So now where people are thinking, well, at least Padilla can potentially elevate this offense with more comfortability. We've seen two years of Spencer, and it doesn't feel like he's elevated the offense in any kind of unique way whatsoever. You're absolutely right. But if I'm playing contrarian, here's what I would say. Iowa scored two touchdowns on that, in that game. Both came on essentially trick plays. So the only way this Iowa offense scored was based on some sort of semi-trick, you know, uh, misdirection play where Iowa had a major advantage once Kentucky played it incorrectly. You know, we had had the reverse or the end around and the throwback. 
And the only really big plays that were out there for much of that game were, you know, trick plays. And you can't have 30 trick, 20 trick plays a game. So if I'm contrarian to this and, and let the record be clear, I, I'm on the side that there's major issues in especially this past scheme. Um, too many guys working horizontally, not enough guys catching the ball while being able to work forward. Um, too many decisions where it's uh, to the perimeter. And if it's completed, it's going to be completed and a step out of bounds. Like there are times for those plays, but there's too much of it. But if I'm going contrarian, look back to so many of these games, how many plays were simply because of a semi trick play, you know, or some massive scheme thing. And how many were a guy being able to cross the field, make a catch, um, create separation and go score. And those were so few and far between. So if I'm looking at it that way, I think there's an obvious issue um, with some of the schemes and maybe how those players are getting the ball. Uh, and I think both sides hit pretty hard on this. And in the Iowa offense, especially from a passing schematic, um, has a lot of, of things that they need to get fixed. You know, we talked about it in, against when uh, I was playing Purdue in the preview, how Jeff Brom, every single time he gets down in the red zone, every third down, it feels like he has a specific play in mind to manufacture separation, manufactures to make something happen. Um, with Brian, and we saw it again, especially in the first half of this game, a lot of spot throws, a lot of, well, let's just see if Sam Laporta can win his route. Let's just see if so-and-so can just win his route. Um we're not going to give him a pick. We're not going to give him even potential screen. Um, we're not going to give him a rub. We're not going to do anything that, or a double move. We're not even going to do anything like that on third down. We're just going to make Spencer Peters throw to a spot in a zone, and hopefully it's a, a pass that's on target. Or usually it's what it is. It's a stopper and out to the sideline. We saw that again in this game, and it was constant throughout the year, which is why I go back to the point of the Keegan Johnson being out. I kind of enjoyed seeing the innovative play calling because guess what would have happened on so many third downs if he's in there? Oh, Keegan's a physical receiver who can threaten the deep pattern, who which we never throw to. Let's have him be physical box out and play a stop um, run a flag or run a stop route to the sideline and have Spencer try to put a ball on the dime and then have just the receiver either drop it or Spencer miss the throw and only be completed about 20% of the time that happened all the time um and there were some times in this game where they did try to manu like you know we talked about the double route to Sam Laporta that ended up really working. We talked about all these throwbacks that really worked out. One play that we haven't talked about was, I believe it came in the first, I think it was on the first field goal drive for Iowa, if I'm not mistaken. It was on a scoring drive for Iowa, or it might have been even uh, the QB sneak fail. Um, but it was a third down, and Arlen Bruce is on the outside. Um, they run sort of a rub for him, and he's running an out route. Spencer's late on the throw because he's peeking back at a potential corner blitz or an outside linebacker blitz. Um, he takes, a, I believe it's either a three or five step drop. He's late on that out route throw that's set up by a rub route. And Arlen Bruce drops it. And remember, he kind of like fumbles it. Um, so one, yeah, it is a late throw. If he's on time with that throw, it's an absolute touchdown wide open. Even if he catches it, it's still probably down like one yard short of the sticks. And then you can sort of gauge whether or not you want to go for it in that spot. That's kind of the innovation that you've been wanting to see from Brian all season that only comes out in the bowl games where you're manufacturing separation. You know, it's crazy to me every single time I watch a Brian Ferentz offense or a lead passing game that he came out of New England system. 
You know what New England does more than any team in the NFL? Rub route, pick route, uh, you know, multi-combo routes that are creating this kind of confusion, tearing up zones. Uh, and we've seen it sparingly from Brian. But again, it's kind of going back to what your point was. Why are you waiting on it? Why are you holding on to that stuff? You should have 20 of those kind of plays with different alignments and different looks at the pre-snap to throw the defense off. And they should throw them at them every single time or at least a lot more than what you're currently doing, because those can be successful plays. They don't need just to be set up by something early on in the game. They can be successful standalone plays on their own. I thought there was a chance late in the game. Um, Iowa was in some 22 personnel, and I believe it might have been 21, and Arlen Bruce was the only uh, receiver on one of those sides, some of those short yardage. And they're bringing him in motion to the inside, and just he was he was blocking. But that's a situation where uh, I really thought Iowa could run similar to the play they ran uh, against Iowa State in overtime when Amir Smith-Marset scored his freshman year where they bring him in motion kind of inside um, quick play action, just have him win two yards to the outside, you know, similar play to what you mentioned earlier. Um, As you said, it was late. He bobbled it. Could have got him to, as you said, an on target on time throw is maybe a score at worst. It puts him at fourth and two, as you said, if he kind of hangs on and falls forward, but that's something that I'd like to see next year. You know, you get to second or third and one, you know, have, have somebody like that, just go win a two yard, but, but it's not just, Hey, we're forcing you to win. You could set it up off of a rub. You can get him in motion to have him run a quick pivot route. It, Cause somebody like that is probably going to win in space um, to get two yards. And, and that's something I hope we see because uh, a couple years ago, Iowa's short yardage and red zone offense was terrible. And then the next year it was fantastic. And once again, we went back to terrible and part of that you know offensive line had struggles but we've said all year it's not that this offensive line is one of the worst in the country you know it's down from what Iowa fans are used to but this wasn't miserable you know there are a lot of miserable offensive lines out there and this wasn't one of them so you know they've got to find ways to get those short yardage turn those field goals into seven because that's a, that's what keeps it from being those one possession games late where a team can make where a player like Wandale Robinson can make one or two guys miss and and have a game winning play but if you score one or two extra touchdowns instead of field goals now that just makes it a one possession game and that's a big thing this offense needs to figure out their passing schematics but they also have got to figure out how they're going to handle short yardage and red zone situations and have you know, instead of a play sheet, it needs to be a book of plays for those situations. Absolutely. You know, you have to turn three into seven, like you said. You also have to convert third third and sevens, third and eights with some regularity. You can't just run a draw on third and seven and third and eight every single time you're on your side of the field. You gotta trust your passing game. You gotta manufacture separation. Throw some get some verticality going. You know, even a screen, a tunnel screen or a drag screen, a delayed drag to like an Arlen Bruce. You know, we saw that a few times in this game. That at least threatens, you know, a six-yard pickup or a seven-yard pickup with potential of more because that guy is so dynamic. But when you go back to, I believe it was either first or second drive for Iowa, and they have on third down, and I believe it's either six or seven, they have a one-read check down to Arlen Bruce, and Arlen Bruce is stopped three yards in front of the sticks. Um, 
you just can't be successful when you run your offense that way. It, it, you have to be able to convert third down and medium. And you have to be able to score touchdowns um, once you're you're close to the end zone, like Iowa gets so many times and just always fails to put it in. They just don't know what to do down there. And if this was any offensive coordinator for a premium school that's you know a 10-game winner or potentially even 11-game winner, a, a, a Power 5 conference championship appearance team type team, the offensive coordinator is getting fired for his performance in the red zone and third down. So, yeah, there is some nepotism with Brian Ferentz. I'm not under the illusion that there's not, and I'll never be convinced that there's not um, because he does a poor job in those two crucial areas who usually define – that's what usually defines an offensive coordinator at every level. And he has absolutely failed. But at the same time, he does have some things that you cling to, and you just hope that it becomes a more constant thing. And years in the future years, but we were saying the same thing last offseason. So I I have no clue. Well, and you just nailed it. It's just like, well, there's one thing that, hey, this was really good. And then another thing that just is really bad. And there's just, there's flashes of, you know, it's, it's like watching sometimes when you watch a young player, it's like there's these flashes of, oh, th- that's what we're waiting for. And then just the inconsistency with that is um, really evident that that there's just so many inconsistencies with kind of things that leave you scratching your head saying, well, you know, it, you have some bright spots here, but then you have the same situation here and it goes a completely different direction. And that's where this offense has to figure out a lot of things. And um, they're just going to have to, because once again, you know, when we look forward to next year, this defense is going to be salty as could be, you know, they bring back so many players and, and there's depth and there's um, talent coming in. So we know what we're going to get from an Iowa defense. Uh, the Iowa offense has been a, a roller coaster right now. And um, there's just, you feel like there's a lot more questions than answers at this point on that side of the ball. Yeah, let's talk about the defense because we did promise it'd be a little bit of a shorter episode and we're already pushing an hour. Uh, I, it, it's just amazing what Thad and I can get in a room and it just rolls and we try to stick to a time slot and it just can't. So anyway, <laughs> so let's actually talk about, we'll go more in depth on in future episodes too about the guys who are leaving and guys who are coming back. And we're still waiting on an answer for Tyler Linderbaum. Um, obviously, we kind of know where probably that's headed, but he did give the eye emojis when Riley Moss announced he was coming back. So you never know. You never know. But who we do know is leaving, Dane Belton which is a little bit surprising, but also, you know, he is a talented player. He, he could, he's going to get drafted. He's going to test well athletically. He has good tape. He's been used in a variety of roles and can fit a variety of roles, especially in this new age, lighter front style defense. Um, I think he's going to be the perfect kind of transition player for a team that's trying to work in that direction of the new NFL style defenses to cover these spread offenses. But he's leaving. Keller Schott's leaving. And then we kind of mentioned, oh, we did mention it. Alex Padilla, Spencer Peters coming back. Riley Moss coming back. Sam Laporta coming back. And so is Jack Campbell, which I thought there was maybe a chance he could declare. I'm glad he's coming back because I think that he has a real shot of, after a great year of going early day two. Um, probably not day one, even though I think athletically, if he tests really well, he could definitely be in that conversation. But, you know, this defense against Kentucky played pretty damn well outside of a few plays um, and a 
and early on getting gashed by the run game. They were playing really well. And I was really impressed with Jamari Harris in particular. Um, I felt like he is the corner of the... He's going to be the next in line um, after Matt Hankins. He's going to be the perfect fill-in. Um, you know, we kind of made fun of his tackling early on in the year. At least I did because it was so pathetic in his first out, ever outing. But again, it's his first ever outing. He's a young guy, and he really did struggle in that moment of making tackles in space. But he's come a long way from a physicality standpoint. It's looking like he's getting if not maybe more physical or putting on weight, he's definitely getting at least more willing to insert his body into a tackle instead of just trying to go for an ankle tackle and and evade the main bulk of the contact, which is a big step. You know, we saw Matt Hankins go through that same process uh, throughout his career. And I thought Jamari Harris, again, had a great game. Jack Campbell had a great game. Um, The one thing that drove me crazy just, and you know, it was a great game, um, especially the ending there. But when after the Wandale Robinson play, they get down to the one, Kentucky false starts, and then the next play from about first and six and a half yard line, Zach Van Volkenberg had their running back Rodriguez dead to rights. He was so screwed, five yards, four yards behind the line of scrimmage, and he had two hands on him. His shoulder pad was in him. And he got shook off, and then it, you know they ended up scoring a touchdown on that same play. Oh, what could have been that? That could have been a stand to remember if that's how Iowa finished out that game, and it was so damn close to actually materializing in there. Oh, you mentioned it. He, you know, somebody who's been one of Iowa's most consistent defensive players, especially you know on that defensive line all season, and he's free, and he gets his arms around him. Um, and just can't bring him down. And and I felt like that with Rodriguez all game long. Um, I kept sending messages like, why is Kentucky not giving him the ball when they got into short yardage and into the red zone? Because when they did, he he was really effective. Um, but yeah, just, you know, that's one of those situations too in bowl games. Guys just always seem tired at the end. Um, you know, they're, they're out of their kind of game shape from the bulk of the season. And obviously it was a really hot day. And... Uh, just as you mentioned, that would have put it at about second down from now. They're probably at the 11 yard line and oh, what, what could have been on, on one play. Uh, and then nobody else could make the play because, um, you know, everybody kind of float was flowing to the other side, but I mean, you mentioned it. That's one play that really you kind of forget about, uh, but was there for the making and there for the taking for Iowa. Yeah. And the amount of, fourth downs Iowa uh, forced and amount of short yardage third downs that Iowa forced in this game you know typical Iowa you know bend give up nine and a half and then don't break um that's what you just come to expect with defenses under Phil Parker at this point um the talent next year assuming everybody returns other than Dane it just looks and obviously Matt Hankins as well um and, you know, I don't, I don't even know what's going on with Jack Kern or two. Did he already use his COVID? He did use his COVID year. Yep. And he's announced that, that he's gone. So, uh, you know, like you said, from openings, there's a safety spot. There's a cash spot. And then one spot on the defensive line. Um, is it <laughs> for a defense that, that returns so much? Yeah. And there's so much excited excitement in those spots that are being vacated. Right. You have Justin Jacobs, who's probably going to step into a full-time role. Um and he did look like I don't know if he was hindered by an injury or what, 
um, the last tail end of the regular season, but he did look a tad bit slower um, toward the end. There were some times in zone where he just felt like his change of direction was a little bit lagging or delayed um, comparatively to how the season started. Again, these guys take a lot of physicality and punishment, and throughout the season, they're probably dinged up a little bit, and then you get this three-week-long, four-week-long break um, to sort of regroup, and then you're going down to sunny Florida, and all of a sudden, it's just like, oh, I feel loose again. And if, uh, But again, it would be nice to see him perform at his peak athletically the entire year because that would be a definitely fill-in for like a Dane Belton or... You know, Xavier, Xavier and Wankpa. We'll, keep, we'll get into all this in the offseason. All this crazy talk about... There's a lot of excitement for Iowa's defense, again. Um, but a lot of excitement in the sense that they might not be just a bend-don't-break. They might be a, we're not going to bend at all. And then we're just going to break you. And I kind of love that. Um. <laughs> this Yeah, this, this defense uh, projecting forward has so many pieces. And you mentioned way back in the early part of the season, the number of guys that you could see um, someday getting into an NFL camp, whether it's, you know, an active roster camp roster. Um, and, you know, they bring back so much and, and really in so many of those spots, there are, I don't want to say obvious guys like Hankins, obviously it's going to be Harris or maybe Terry Roberts, you know, he was slotted and all we've heard is, you know, when it's his time, man, look out. Uh, so that's going to be interesting to see, uh, if he flips sides in the battle for those two, because as you mentioned, Jabari Harris looked, looked the part um, and played really well down the stretch of the season. And, you know, there's some guys on that defensive line that can take the opening uh, defensive end spot. So I'm really excited to see what that team looks like going forward. And there's a couple guys, you know, in a future pod that, that I'm sure we'll mention um, that I think could take big leaps forward and, push this defense possibly to, I don't want to say another level, but back to this level um, at least. (laughs) Let's say another level because, you know, there there was the game against Purdue. That happened. There was the game against Michigan. That happened. And there was the game against Wisconsin where they, three games where they're getting gashed. It would be nice to see none. You know, like a, like a Georgia type performance in the season or something. I don't know. Maybe I'm being maybe too optimistic. But the point is, is that they're losing Matt Hankins, Zach Van Volkenberg, Jack Kerner, and Dane Belton. I think all four of those guys could be part of an NFL organization by week one of next or this next NFL season. Um, if not guaranteeing three with the hindrance of Jack Kerner. Um, I think maybe Jack Kerner could be one of those late um, preseason cuts. I, I still have to watch a little bit more film on him in terms of just translating the NFL. Um, but as far as Zach Van Volkenberg's concerned, Dane Belton and Matt Hankins, those are three guys who could potentially, well, Matt Hankins and Dane Belton could definitely make an NFL roster. And then Zach Van Volkenberg, I think is typical practice squad fodder for at least a couple of years. If he wants it, um, you know, it, it's the, we're potentially losing four NFL kind of players and it doesn't feel like they're getting dinged up that much, which is kind of just the state of Iowa's defense. Amazing how coming into the season, there were all those question marks, especially on the defensive line. And now it's just like, you know, we could go seven, eight guys deep and be like, I, I like these pieces along there. Um, and a credit to guys like, uh, you know, th- that defensive staff, obviously Phil Parker, but um, Bell and, and some of those guys in, Neiman, those guys who are coaching those linebackers and those linemen 
to get just next man up making plays. And there's so many pieces that you can see that defense looking similar or possibly better in some places um, is really exciting because it was one of the best defenses in the country all year long. And yeah, they had some hiccups along the way, but we could see that all over again, um, which if that's the case, you know, it's, it's another good season for Iowa. Yeah. And, you know, shout outs to these high schools that are turning out all these young players that are almost immediately college ready. Um, you know, we kind of talked about how it took forever for Seth or, uh, uh, blanking Justin Jacobs to get on the field. This is only his third. This was only his third year in the program and he's performing the way he is. Jack Campbell, same thing. Um, I believe Dane Belton, same thing. Logan Lee performed admirably. Same thing. Three years. It's just the amount of youth, the amount of excitement that is immediately present, especially even again, Jamari Harris as well. These guys are coming out of high school nowadays and just ready to play. And I don't know if that's, I was building a, a brand that people players want to be a part of, or if they know exactly who to hone in and target on, or if they're building pipelines that we kind of know maybe a little bit about, but all of a sudden they're really materializing after years of work to build those up. I don't know what it is, but it feels like for the first time in a long time, Iowa is not only talented on defense, they're youthful on defense. They have depth on defense. They go past the starters. They have playmakers all over. One guy goes down, two guys go down, and the two guys that fill in, the third guy that fills in, they can all play at a high level and power five football in the Big Ten, and that's such a wild thing. This is Iowa. This is Iowa, and that's what we're turning out 10-win teams and teams that have depth that goes five players deep. You know, for all the the cautious optimism I was talking about, the offense just throw caution out to the wind when you talk about Iowa defense. Um, there is optimism, rightfully so, um, when you think about these guys coming back. And I think about somebody like Jack Campbell, who reminds me so much of Tyler Linderbaum from this standpoint of like his personality. You know, a pretty local guy that came in um, and just does his work and gets better. And I don't think that he's going to all of a sudden become a, a top 10, 15, 20 pick draft pick by coming back. But as somebody who um, is really an excellent player who has a chance to improve his stock and with his work ethic and the way he approaches every day is undoubtedly going to do that. And you talk about uh, the leading total tackler in all of college football coming back and with the way he's going to do it, a chip on his shoulder for something um, to lead that defense with all those pieces around. And it's going to be a really uh, exceptional defense once again. And, you know, now, now you have me excited for this off season of, of looking forward and talking to it and eventually getting to spring ball to talk about it. But um, yeah, my excitement's back, you know, the season's over and you kind of process it <laughs> and now you talk about it and it's just like, all right, let's like, let's go. We, why do we have to wait so long? Yeah. And Thad and I will be pro- providing you with more episodes and we'll be having, we'll have so much to talk about. Um, uh, there's just a lot of excitement with Iowa football right now, especially with on defensive side, um, intrigue on the offense, but maybe not necessarily excitement. Uh, <laughs> that said, you know, we're going to end this podcast, this episode in particular, uh, here. 
just because, again, we'll be talking about NFL draft stuff. We'll be talking about offseason stuff, depth charts, players who are coming back and leaving, um, players that are coming into the program for the first time ever. You know, there's a lot of excitement. I imagine that uh, Thad and I will drop also some creative content for you guys, um, whether it's in video form or whatever. I think we have some interesting stuff that we could throw at you um, this offseason. But that said, we will see you all in a future podcast. Take it easy.